chapter 5 as we continue our series through this great epistle. We've been saying our whole way through that this is one of this is a an Old Testament feeling New Testament book. It's uh, it was chronologically quite close to the Old Testament being written. Of course, the closest of the New Testament. It was the first New Testament uh, book that was written. But also the, the 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 feel, the vibe, the the atmosphere of the book very much sounds and feels like an Old Testament book. It it feels like it's sort of been stripped somewhat from the Book of Proverbs. A little bit there. We were we were in Isaiah's uh, prophecy as he was calling down woes and curses upon the whores and the adulterers and the evil rich people. That was, of course, there. And we, uh, we no doubt had some colorful sermons there. But we find ourselves now in chapter 5 and verse 12. And again, this is, a, this is an extremely practical, uh, very uh, pithy in the sense that it's short, not very connected to everything around it, although we can see some themes that carry over. But uh, basically from here on, verse 12 onwards to the end of the book, uh, commentators are just split. They don't know whether or not Well, some try and claim that there is because they want to see, you know, perfect unity and they want to make it a nice, neat epistle like Paul's, but it's just not there. You go from verse 12 onwards and it doesn't feel like there's a unifying uh, theme to the end of the epistle, but we're going to take this one verse this evening. It's one verse, read it, expound it, and apply it, and God will bless it to us. So the verse is, verse 12, it says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. May God bless the reading of his word in our midst. (coughs) We'll try that one more time. May God bless his inerrant, inspired, powerful word in our midst this evening. Come on, you've got to stay energetic. What we've seen so far is the context from verse 7 to 11 of people who are suffering. Already he has been, uh, he is uh, at the first part of chapter 5, the first six verses, he brought down that, that tirade against the evil rich people who were abusing and therefore uh, defrauding and by doing so, by extension, killing people that they were, they were keeping back their income from. Uh, that was the first six verses. And then verse 7 through 11, he started talking to those who were suffering, the, the righteous Christians, and who were most of them quite poor because they were able to, able to be taken uh, uh, advantage of. They were defrauded. They were struggling. They were suffering. They were starving. And, of course, these were Christians who were Jews ethnically who had had to run from the persecution of their kinsmen, of their brothers and sisters according to the flesh, of the, the religious zealots of the Jews that were persecuting them and driving them from their city. They were bereft. They were largely poor. They were dependent on uh, other people, and here they were being abused. And so we'll just go to verse 9, because it somewhat gives us the theme. If there is a connection, it gives us the theme, some context for what James says tonight in verse 12. In verse 9, he says, To those who are suffering, in the midst of their patience and their endurance, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And then we find tonight's text a few verses later. But, but above all, my brothers, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Now, it seems that what James has been saying, at least then in verse 9, he was saying uh, with, with, with all of the encouragement that he could muster 
And, and he does this because he bookends it with the judge is standing at the door. That's a pretty severe warning and encouragement. The judge is right nearby. You'll be rewarded sooner than you realize. This earth, this life is shorter than we all understand, as we've said like, uh, earlier on in chapter 4, that it's just a breath. It's just a mist. You're, you're here and then you're gone. Don't think of yourself too highly, but also don't think of your suffering too highly. It will come to an end when you are ushered into the, uh, into the glories of heaven and then, of course, the new heaven, the new earth in all of its fullness at the last day. But, but here we are. J James is saying in your suffering, as you're being patient, as you're working and earning and, and uh, piling up for yourselves rewards in heaven for your righteous, innocent victimization, do not undo those rewards. Do not go and spoil your witness. Do not go and ruin your innocency by doing the very thing that the people abusing you are doing to you. Do not be the person who rocks up suffering, praying, an example of patience, comes to church and then starts dropping lines like, you have it easy compared to me. You know, okay, you're suffering in that way, but you have no clue what I'm going through. Don't grumble against one another like that. Don't, don't try and use suffering as a way to sort of leverage pity from people. It is pitiable. It is ungodly, and it is what James is calling here a, a sin. It is grumbling. I love a, uh, the, the, a quote from an old Puritan who said that, that God allows his people to groan, but never to grumble. God allows his people to groan like Job under the pains of suffering, under, the, under the, the stretching pain of endurance, but he never allows us to grumble. For grumbling, he slew tens of thousands of his own people in the desert after coming from Sinai before the, before the wilderness. He hates grumbling. Don't grumble against God, but groan to him. But he also says, don't grumble against other people. Don't, uh, don't, don't try and leverage pity for yourself. Don't identify who you are with your sob story. Or even it's a lot more genuine. If you genuinely have this traumatic abuse and victimization in your life, don't identify with that. Don't say that that is who you are, that that is who you will see yourself as. It is not a lens through which everyone needs to identify you or, or relate to you, it is something that has happened in God's sovereignty, but you are more than your suffering. Do not grumble. Do not use it, as verse 12 shows us, do not use it as an excuse for yourself to lie. We've said this back in chapter 1. We've been saying this just about every chapter as this theme comes up. As God turns up the heat of suffering and affliction in your life, it opens up all of the opportunities for sin and it brings temptation to the foreground. We've been warned back in chapter 1, do not then use that as an excuse to blame God for your sin. Well, God led me to this temptation. God led me to this difficult fork of the road. What was I to do except for sin? No, that is blaming God unrightly. That is further sin. However, we should be aware that sin will always be brought to the front, to the foreground, to the surface in our suffering, and yet we cannot also, we should not use that as an excuse to start lying. Well, I'm under just so much pressure, you know, I'm, I'm the victim in general, there's sort of more against me, more sin against me at the moment than sin that I'm committing at the moment, so it sort of evens out a little bit. Verse 12 is telling us, do not be those who in your suffering use excuses for lies, the commandments of God, those moral commandments given to us in the Ten Commandments, are binding at all times to all people in all places. Do not swear falsely, he says. In fact, you can sort of start seeing how if somebody is financially suffering and in a great deal of difficulty 
because of how they've been defrauded, it can be just so tempting for them to defraud others, for them to speak falsely, for them to do whatever they can to try and uh, uh, trim a little bit off the top of maybe it's their offering, maybe it's it's their gifts, maybe they use their language in order to get handouts from other people, whatever it is. James is warning us, do not use your words in such a way as to do anything other than convey honest truth in love. So we have three main sort of headings, the way that we're going to be talking about oaths and, uh, and swearing and making promises tonight. We're going to see, first of all, swearing is not to be necessary. Our word should be enough. Secondly, we'll see that when swearing is necessary, it should not be flippant. And thirdly, we'll see that swearing should be necessary in very few occasions and should be done by God's name only. Is the simple, practical theology of Pastor James. He's spoken already of how, how, often, how common and how difficult it is to, 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 to control the tongue. It is that, that body part that seems so small but is so powerful, able to destroy your life it is not, if it is not kept in check. We're going to see that in a, in a few ways just shortly. So, first of all, <coughs> swearing is not to be necessary our word should be enough. You know, you can, you can go and read the, the documents yourselves. Just a, a few generations ago, there was, there was no such thing as the common contract when you're entering into financial agreements. There was, there was no such thing as, as these. It was simply enough to give a gentleman's word. If it was serious enough, they would attend it with a gentleman's firm handshake. That's what it was a few generations ago. In fact, I, was, I had the, the joy, the comedic pleasure of reading a couple of uh, bits of family history just a, a few weeks ago about a, um, a great, great grandfather of mine who had come over from Scotland as a child and was living here in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. And, and he was uh, charged. Uh, 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 I seem like the guy that has a perfect family history, but there is some nuts in this tree. I assure you of that. But we had this guy... Uh, Mr. George Scobie, he, had a, um, uh, he was charged and he had to go to jail for a whole month or pay a fine of two pounds. That doesn't even mean anything. We have no clue what pounds are today. A lot, a lot of money or the equivalent of a month in jail because he used uh, uh, what we'll say a, a four-letter word in public in a union meeting as he spoke against the government of his time and said some very un- unloving things and unkind things about their daughters. That's what he did. And for doing so, they had a court session where he and witnesses and judges and the jury were were paid. They spent money on this to ascertain whether or not he had used that four-letter word in uh, in relation to a governing official of the time. Being found guilty, he was charged with a month's imprisonment. Can you imagine if we were still trying to, to run our society on that kind of justific- uh, uh, that kind of legal system? How many of you would be in jail, right? How, how far we have come as a society that, that, that we can at one point be thrown in prison for using un, uh, 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 for cussing against people in high states, or that we used to be able to just give our word, put the hand into a shake, and thus people would be bound and expected and legally responsible if they broke such an agreement. You know, it's, uh, he said back in chapter 1, James was saying that sin, sin is like pregnancy in the sense that it, it grows, it degrades, it corro- uh, pregnancy is not a corrosion, let me, let me just say that, uh, but, but it has this organic nature and tendency to grow unless stopped. 
So that, so that sin in, in a people group, sin in a culture, sin, sin in a church uh, cannot just stay at the level of, um, of tolerating a few lies here and there. On a societal level, this, this gangrene has grown to such a point that if you were to meet somebody, maybe, maybe not two generations ago, maybe just 50 years ago, and you said to them, you know, we've gone from, from a firm handshake, being enough to certify truth, now you're signing contracts, and now you're requiring of people just a little bit more. Don't you think it's a problem that lies are allowed a little bit more? Don't you think it's a problem that we now tolerate the breaking and the mishandling of truth? Now, I'm sure somebody 50 years ago would have said, not at all. You know, just because we're allowing the, the mutilation of truth in this small way, that doesn't mean that in 50 years we'll be saying things like, I don't know, men can get pregnant. And yet this is the undeniable, because you're living in it, this is the undeniable corrosion that happens to a people group, to a church, or to individuals that allow the breakdown of truth. The reason God gave us communication was the faithful passing on of truth. To misuse that, to, to mishandle that, is to do damage like a, like, a, like a cancer will grow, or like James's example, like death conceived in the womb will grow and give forth and be brought forth into destruction. No one, no one 50, 50 years ago would have thought that just because we're tolerating lies just a little bit more in a legal sense that we will have the, the utter destruction of truth in our society. And yet we are here. The, the allowance of lies, the, the requiring of promises in order to trust anybody, and postmodernism that, that butchers truth in the streets is the same sin. It is the same sin of excusing lies and undervaluing truth. <clears throat> So, this brings us to what James is speaking here, where, where he's speaking against such things as swearing and oaths. This is, this is what is very common in our, in our society of, of, of generations gone by as well. People require of each other. People make people promise. People make people sign a dotted line and, and, and put everything on the line because we can't trust each other. I remember knowing one guy who was a Christian. I've heard this story uh, hundreds of times from different people. It, it happens all over the place. But a Christian does a job. He was a tradesman, so, so you'd think very smart. Uh, but he was a tradesman, and he was a Christian, and he was working for another Christian, and they signed no contract. He did all of his work before getting any payment whatsoever. You can see where this is going. Because he said, we don't need a contract. We're Christians. We're brothers in the Lord. Now, Cain and Abel were brothers. Look at how that worked out. That means nothing. This is, this is what, it, well, it, it should mean something, but today it simply means nothing. We, we bring into the, into, the, um, uh, uh, into the mix swearing and promises and oaths because what we're trying to do is tip the scales against the very human nature and the tendency to sin and to lie. The very human nature tendency is to devalue truth. So what we do is we make people promise. We make them promise a large sum of money. We, we put deposits in. We, we do whatever we can to try and control that sin of lying. But doesn't Jesus know himself? Didn't James know himself from what he saw happen to his own brother? That if somebody like Judas, like the Pharisees, like, like the betrayers, if anybody is set on betraying you, they don't care how many times they need to lie. But we're speaking now, as James is, of the Christian community and Christian character as we relate to the world and speak to the world and make agreements with each other and the world. And so James is showing us that 
While the world wants to make promises and oaths and, and sign contracts in order to undo or outweigh the, the human tendency to lie, there really is only one power in the world that can outweigh and overpower the sinful nature of humanity to sin and to lie. And that power is the power of regeneration. A new heart that genuinely loves the truth. A new heart that genuinely hates to sin. A new heart that, that doesn't want gain that can be gotten through lies and swearing falsely. That's the Christian. That cannot be forced onto somebody. That, that ethic of genuinely desiring truth, of genuinely valuing the word, of genuinely wanting to honor my Lord God, who is himself truth, who is incarnate as the truth in flesh, who calls me in truth, who commands me to speak in truth, who speaks to me in truth. These people, born again by the word of truth ought to be those people and are those people that have in them the only power to overcome our tendency to lie. And so this is what James is calling us to. Live such a life of consistency. Live such a life of, of dependable, trustworthy truth that when you, when, when you refuse to make rash promises and you refuse to just bookend every sentence and every RSVP with, no, 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 I promise, I really, really promise, cross my heart, hope to die, uh, if you're lying, you get to just cross your fingers. Like it becomes so flippant. We don't need any of that because we have the, the far more solid, firm, stable witness of a lifestyle. That's what you want to build. A lot of young Christians today, we, we sort of, we've, we've, dr we've drunk in the, the culture of our time that it matters nothing if we just burn contracts, change our name, cancel a credit card so that we just get out of whatever agreements that we've gotten ourselves into. We'll, we'll say yes on social media, over text. We'll say yes to the faith and then come up with some excuse so as not to go to the thing we agreed to, so as not to fulfill a, 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 a command that we had. Can we just, if we were going to be as practical as James likes us to get, you will go very, very far in your employment if you just put this one skill into your resume that you honor truth. When you say you'll be there for a shift, you do not, your, your boss does not need to fear that you're going to be one of the people that will falsely call in sick at the last moment. You're not somebody who's going to just not rock up because you got invited to a party or you got a better offer. You gave your word you'll be there. How, how many uh, tradies do we have around who would just love an apprentice that could just fulfill their word? How, how many employees right now, or maybe landlords who have tenants, how different would our life be if we could just trust people? Yeah, this, is, this is actually so significant. I had, a, I had an unsaved uh, uh, employer at one point who was very keen to employ me. Though an atheist, he wanted a young Christian man because young non-Christians knew nothing about Guarding a reputation. Knew nothing about living honorably and, and living up to promises. That, it got me a job. I was, I was very thankful for that. And we need to think this way. We need to see how powerful it is, how practical it is to simply honor our word. Promises and oaths and swearing and all of these things are, as, are the equivalent of pinky promises in the kindergarten playground. They know you can't trust each other. But what God has done that has made us more trustworthy is not give us certain oaths to swear, but given us a character forged through the blood of Jesus so that we, being born again, can live in the truth. That should be enough. And therefore, swearing should be totally unnecessary. It should be enough to say yes and people honor. 
Okay, I don't have bladder issues. I've just spilt a big bottle of water into the pulpit. Just for anybody sitting here who couldn't see that, and now you're hearing leaking. And in case I got splashed, no splash. It's all good. We can, we can edit that part out. Microphone is gone. Uh, somebody will sort that out later. <clears throat> now my boots are wet. Do I have a deacon to come and clean my boot? Anyway, <laughs> no, I'm good, all good. <clears throat> so let's keep going. Let's keep going. Down into, uh, 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 well, we're not changing verses, are we? We're just sticking all in the one verse. But in verse 12, he continues to say uh, uh, and give this, this theme that when swearing is necessary and it sometimes is necessary, it should not be flippant. So what James says is, let your yes be yes and your no, no, after he has just said, make no other oath. Swear neither by heaven or earth or by any other oath. Now, He's addressing a sin of the day. If we, get, if we jump ourselves into like one of the other historical traditions, uh, we get ourselves into trouble that takes this absolutist language and applies it without the, the broader tota scriptura, right? The, the totality of the witness of scripture. If we don't apply all of it into this, this doctrine of oaths and swearing, then we get ourselves into trouble because it sounds so absolute what James is talking about. We'll see soon what, what Jesus addressed. He said, never make an oath. And yet we have biblical examples of making oaths, which we'll see in just a moment. But the sin of the day that Jesus addressed, the sin of the day that his younger brother, Pastor James, was addressing, was these conversational flippant oaths. Yes, I'll be there. I, I promise by the temple of God. Yes, I'll give you that money. I, I swear by, by the heavens that God sits in. Yes, yes, I'll, I'll do that for you. I swear by my grandmother's grave. These sorts of flippant conversational oaths. If you can go with me to Matthew chapter 5, we will see where Jesus addresses this very same issue. Matthew chapter 5, and it'll be verse 33 to 37. I can handle the reading. That's okay. Don't need an audio Bible. (laughs) All right, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. We're all good, James. I might just give you the the microphone at least to wipe up. We'll give this a second round, eh? So this is what Jesus has said. And again, if you you read that and you start realizing that here is an absolute commandment and prohibition, never are we to make anything such as a promise or a swearing or an oath by any means or for any reason. But what Jesus was speaking about also, which we'll see in the, um, the broader biblical context soon, was those conversational oaths that was handed down by tradition of the Jews. So when Jesus says here, you have heard it said to those of old, honor the vows that you make to the Lord. He says it in verse three, you've heard it said, uh, 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 you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This is not something that is taken up out of, uh, out of Scripture that he's now saying that's not true. He's addressing the rabbinical traditions that had developed, and it's sneaky because he didn't even notice that in what he said. But what they said was, honor all of your vows to the Lord. And we all want to say amen to that. Except that what they meant was, if your vow is not to the Lord, but is to something like your own head, 
or the temple or the city of Jerusalem or by heaven, but not to the Lord, then you have wiggle room and you can weasel out of your obligations to that oath. So Jesus simply says, well, what are you, uh, first of all, his point is swear by nothing except God. The second thing that he's pointing out, though, is do not use these oaths so as to weasel your way out of your obligations, but rather let your yeses be yes and let your noes be no. We all know the, the maxim is true. It's been said many different ways, but the, basically it goes like this. The more swearing there is, the more lying there is. The more promising there is, the more lying there is. It's the untrustworthy person who knows that they're not very trustworthy, who will pile up, layer on top of layer of, I promise, you can trust me, I'm absolutely sure, what do I need to give you, what do I need to say? So Jesus addresses that there and says, there's, there's nothing more holy than God. There's no point in swearing to anything but God. And when you promise, make it not these conversational things. Never have in your conversation. Now, this is just so practical. We need to allow the Bible to not just agree with us when we think something sinful, but actually create new, new categories for us to realize what is sin. So, so we need to start realizing every time we've said to other people, I'll be there, I promise, pinky promise, cross my heart, hope to die, or, or we say anything other than simply the, the bare statement of truth with the trust that they can trust us, and then following that up with the fulfillment of our promise, and never making excuses like, well, I said I would, but I didn't promise. Oh, I said I'd do that, but where's the contract? I knew a friend who got out of a contract once because his name, his last name was spelt with one letter wrong, and therefore he was able to weasel himself out of the entire obligation. That, my friends, is sin. God despises it. We should never use language like that in our conversation, but rather speak truthfully and live in light of that truth. But go with me also to Matthew chapter 23, as Jesus brings this up again. The significance here is... <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 23, and we'll be in verse 16, this again is not simply the ramblings or the rattlings of a rabbi who had nothing else to say. Not only does he speak that about the importance of not making silly conversational oaths and promises in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever, when Jesus is giving kingdom ethics, not only is that the case, but he then brings it up as part of the sins, as one of the types of sins for which the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were going to be judged so severely. They were going to be punished because they had done all of these sorts of things. They had robbed widows. They had changed the laws of God. They had abominated the holy place with their lies, all of these things. And in verse 16 through 22, we see that part of their heinous sin is the degradation of truth by false swearing. So look at verse 16. He says, woe to you, blind guides. That is a heavy prophetic woe. To say woe in the prophetic writing is to be calling down a curse of God upon somebody. Woe to you. There will be destruction on you because you swear falsely. You blind guides. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple... It's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? And you also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. Do you think Jesus respected them? 
Was his tone nice? Did he care what they thought? Was he being winsome? He's ripping them to shreds, calling them blind. You are so stupid, you cannot see the, lo- the illogical nature of what you are saying. He says, for what is greater, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, verse 20, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. The point that he's saying here is this, there's this overly pious way of saying, well, I won't swear to God lest that offend him. What I'll do is weasel my way into lies. I'll, I'll swear to the temple. You can break that one. That's fine. That, that was legally allowed in Jerusalem. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, well, now you're obligated because that's something really holy. And Jesus' logic simply is this. If the temple is the holy thing, uh, sorry, if the the gold is holy, it's only holy because it's on the temple. So if you're going to swear by the gold, then you're swearing by the temple. If you're swearing by the temple, you're swearing by that which makes the temple holy. If you're swearing by heaven, you're swearing by what makes heaven heavenly. If you're swearing by the earth, you're swearing by what makes the earth a footstool. Who made the earth? If you're swearing by an altar, you're swearing by what is on the altar and what sanctifies the altar. In other words, if you swear on literally anything in God's green earth and the cosmic expanses of the universe, you are promising to God himself. Because there's no way that you can escape his eye, escape his obligation, and escape his, his, his holding you to account simply by swearing to something or by something that he didn't see or that he didn't make or that he doesn't account. Everything in this world is his. Every promise and rash vow is heard by him. And therefore, he says, if I'm holding you to obligation to everything you've ever said, whether you promised and vowed it or not, then you may as well just live a life that is yes to be yes and your no's are no. Everything else, Jesus says, is of the evil one. Everything else, James says, will leave you condemned. Everything else is sin. So we have this very simple application to us. When we are swearing, if it is necessary, it should never be flippant. And it should always be done by God. Here's a couple of examples in Scripture where we can start realizing some balance to this situation that certain oaths and some swearing and promises are allowed, in fact, commanded. We'll start with the strongest argument here so that we don't go too far on one side and start throwing away um, uh, 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 or over-applying this command so that we can't swear in court, we can't make an oath or a vow at our wedding, which, you know, we're above that, sorry babe, Uh, uh, I said yes, you'll just have to leave it at that. Um, uh, Here's some examples as to how we can know oaths are not entirely condemned in scripture. Psalm 95, God actually makes an oath himself. He says, I have sworn in my wrath, this generation who tried him and was rebellious to him, they shall not enter my rest. He swore in his wrath. He made a vow and a promise, and he fulfilled it. Psalm 110, quoted for us in Hebrews 7, verse 21, the writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So we have God making an oath and a promise and a vow to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be, upon his resurrection, the priest and the king and the prophet over the people of God forever. He did that with a vow and a promise by which he swore. 
swearing is not absolutely sinful. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 gives us the other example when God himself swore, when he was speaking to the patriarch Abraham. It says in Hebrews 6, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So, so God is sort of living up to his own ethical standards. He says, Swear by nothing except for me. There's nothing higher than me. There's nothing else to swear by except for me. And he himself does that. When God is making a promise to Abraham that he will have a nation, that from his nation will come the Christ, that until that time the nation will have a country, when he's making all of these promises, he says, whose name will I swear by? Whose temple will I call to keep me to account? He called his, himself to his own account. When God made this promise, the only thing that would break this promise would be the death of God himself. God made a vow to Abraham. We also see human oaths that are in Scripture and allowable. In Leviticus 19 verse 12, it says, Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So he's not saying don't swear at all. He's just saying don't swear falsely when you swear by my name. Or in Exodus chapter 20 verse 10, there is uh, 10 and 11, there is this command. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox, or a sheep, or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them, both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and she, he shall not make restitution. In other words, you lend out your, 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 your ox or your donkey or your ute, whatever you want to use, it's a modern-day application. You lend out your ute with the trailer full of tools to your mate, and he goes and, and he uh, is using it or is safekeeping it or you give your house to be watched over while you're on holidays by somebody else or somebody, dog sits for you, something like that. Somebody's looking after your goods and then you come back and they tell you it's gone. I didn't see it stolen. I didn't not fight for your stuff, which would have been my obligation. I, I just woke up one morning and it's gone. God commands in that moment where they didn't have CCTV footage to make an oath before the Lord to hold him to account. That if I'm lying, may God hold it against me. But I promise you, I did not steal it, sell it, or damage it myself. And God commands that oath. And he says, and the owner of the goods needs to just accept that oath as binding. So we need to just allow ourselves the, the, the category that there is times that it is uh, necessary and appropriate to swear an oath. And we'll finish uh, with this understanding that when we make such oaths, they should be in very few occasions, very rarely, and should be done by God's name and nothing else. This is sort of the, the concluding application. You can make no conversational oaths or promises. Don't speak that way. Just live honestly. However, there is an opportunity that you can make a vow or a promise in, the, in a more holy, in a more uh, significant and weighty uh, situation. And when we do, they always need to be done by God's name. So we have, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. Otherwise, go find the recording because I'm not going to go to each of them. But Paul actually makes promises by God's name in Romans 1 verse, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23, Philippians 1, verse 8, and then twice in the chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. And, and usually what he's doing is he's just calling God to account for something that he is saying. He's saying, he's saying uh, uh, God bears witness, I plan to come to you. Or, or God bears me witness, I am not lying as I'm saying this. Now, we might read that and think that that sounds pretty conversational and sounds like he's going against the principle of James and Jesus, 
But in fact, for Paul, his reputation and the fact that he was telling the truth literally was, uh, was that thing which was depended upon for people to accept apostolic words or not. So we can just accept that there's this, there's this extra category that Paul will more often make God is my witness type statements because if people did not believe him, they would lose three quarters of their New Testament. So it's very significant that Paul would be understood. That was a, and, and therefore, it does actually elevate a lot of Paul's everyday language as an apostle up to the severe and significant level by which he can call God to an account. So he does that, uh, the showing a very significant matter can be bound by saying, God bears me witness or I promise before God. Other situations that we see in Scripture are things like marriage, the ordination of, an, of a pastor or a deacon or a missionary, uh, uh, somebody being ordained to something like a public office, and of course, when you are brought to court of law as maybe a witness or maybe a juror or something like that. Those things are significant enough and rare enough to require of you a swear and an oath to be telling the truth. Marriage is one of these. I had the pleasure of officiating a marriage just yesterday, and part of what I say to those people, and I, I want married people to consider this, and those who are dating or engaged to consider the solemnity of a vow. I warn them when I marry them, I say, these vows are not cute, pretty poems. You are covenanting yourself. You are promising a very present, powerful, holy God that if you ever break this marriage covenant, he will hold it against you and he will either punish you if you are found to be untruly saved or he will have to have punished Christ for it and yet you will have severe, severe consequences in this life. This is the reality. If you are not willing for God to read out curses for punishment, if you're not willing for people to line up and listen to you and watch your life so that you fulfill something, then don't make a rash vow upon something. And yet, we shouldn't care, on the other hand, if everybody watches our life to see if we fulfill every word that we spoke because we're people of personal integrity. It is a light that shines very brightly in the world when you are somebody that simply has personal integrity. Employers notice it, neighbors notice it, friends notice it, church members notice it. It is a powerful gem and a, and a powerful element of personal character to have integrity. As we sort of close out here, I'll, I'll just point you to, we were going to go there, but time's running short. I'll just point you to London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 23, verse 1, uh, sorry, verses, it's not the Bible, pretty close, but it's not the Bible. London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 23, and paragraphs 1 through 3 give a perfect summary of exactly what we're talking about here tonight. Do not make rash vows. The word of a Christian should be enough. And, uh, and when we make these legal vows, these significant vows, we do it by the name of God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 13 tells us, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. As we close up tonight, can you go to Psalm 24? We've seen already the significance and the significant comparison that James and Jesus have compared to our generation and probably us sitting here tonight, our consideration of things like lying and swearing. We've already seen Jesus say that it was part of the reason the Jews were to be judged. We saw uh, uh, James say that those who do not do this will fall under condemnation. We saw Jesus say that to do anything else is from Satan. And here we see 
in Psalm 24, God himself say that part of the requirement of him who would save his people, part of the requirement of the Messiah, in fact, one of the key markers of the Messiah that we read in Isaiah 53 is that there will be no deception found in his mouth. What a powerful thing to think that Jesus lived his whole childhood, his whole teenage years, his whole adulthood, never promising something unnecessary, never breaking a single word of which he said yes or no. He spoke the truth and he filled it. He backed it up by a life filled with the lived truth. And in, in, in chapter 24, we see that God required that of the great high priest and the Lamb of God, the Messiah. Verse 3 in chapter 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, a sign of idolatry, and who does not swear deceitfully. I wonder if those would be the two things. Maybe idolatry makes sense. If you're going to make the two things that a holy person does, it's not bow down to idols and it's not make false swearing. I wonder if you would realize, you would, you would have thought naturally that God takes it that seriously. And maybe we need to start rethinking over our life and, and not just thinking how we're going to fix it, but thinking what we need to bring to God in confession, in apology, in sincere confession of sin, because God looks at each one of those rash vows or incompleted yeses and nos, and he judges them. He bars us from his eternal abode because of them. He condemns people in hell because of them. And yet how good and pleasant and amazingly joyful it is for us to remember that God does not treat us according to what our sins deserve. That if you're in Christ by faith tonight, if James's older brother Jesus, dying on the cross, resurrected into glory, if to him you have given your faith and your trust, you don't have to face a single ounce of a single bit of punishment for any one of your rash vows, stupid oaths, or sinful speech. We can rest in Jesus being fully cleansed because he was the one who was of clean hands. He was the one of the pure heart in whom there was no deceitful swearing. Some of you, though, have have yet to trust in Jesus. And that is the compelling exhortation of James and myself tonight. Believe on Jesus. Be saved. Don't don't start trying to live your life more honestly first. Come back to Jesus when you've cleaned your slate up a bit. Just throw your sinful soul into the loving arms of Jesus who promises that on the basis of his death and resurrection, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we... We read passages like this and what the word speaks to us, sinful humans, and we have moments like Isaiah had when he, when he witnessed and he saw the Lord of glory on his throne and he threw himself to the ground with a, with a fresh realization that in comparison to your holiness, I'm a man, I'm an unclean man. Woe is me. Jesus said woe to the, to the Jews of his day. Woe is us, Lord God. As Isaiah said, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. We just, we just realize afresh how holy you are, how perfect your standard is. We, we just rebuked anew with, with how little we have any confidence to think that we could live up to your standards. Father God, we are just all the more awakened to the fullness and the power and, 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 the, and the extravagance of your grace. Though we have made so many Religious agreements, conversational agreements, silly vows and oaths and promises that, that, that are a blasphemy against you because you are truth itself. 
We've, we've marred our image of God, which is this ability to communicate in truth. Father God, we, we confess our sin. And we don't try and clean ourselves up. We don't try and tip the scales in our, in our favor. We don't try and make excuses, as James has said. We simply confess our sin. We ask, Lord God, that you would give to us your Holy Spirit to live a new, empowered, and holy life. Would you enable us, Lord God, to rest on the promises of Jesus' death and resurrection? And would you give to us a, a Christ-like character, like Jesus, to just be able to speak truth honestly? Using that sword in such a, such a balanced and stable and, and, and appropriate way, that word of truth. And, and Father God, I pray that those who have not yet, not yet trusted in Jesus, who are right now before your throne, they are people of unclean lips. They are unclean and unfit to be able to come into your eternal heaven. Father God, I pray that you would forgive them. Would you give them your grace and your mercy? Would you give them a heart to believe by faith? And would Jesus Christ cleanse them by his blood and bring them into his family by his justifying, saving grace? Father God, in all these things, we pray with confidence and expectation because your word tells us to do so. We are thankful for the name and the blood and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. And everybody said, amen.